Mapping Exploitation is brought to you by Measurable Change. Before we get started, a listener note. This episode contains adult language and content and may not be suitable for all audiences. Most holes have low self-esteem for a reason. A pimp looks for that weakness. And if it isn't on the surface, he brings that motherfucker out of him. It doesn't matter to a pimp what hole's weaknesses are, so long as they have them. Then he uses those weaknesses to his advantage. Weakness is the best trait a person can find in someone they want to control. You can't find a weakness, you have to create one. You have to tear someone's ego down to nothing before they will start looking to you for salvation. Then you have a chance to build them back up, showing them that it's your program that takes them from darkness to hope. While you want them to feel good about themselves eventually, you want them to feel that it's because of you. They begin to see you as their champion, their hero. Even if the weakness you rescued them from is the one you created. Pimpin' Ken from his book Pimpology, The 48 Laws of the Game. Measurable Change is a nonprofit dedicated to eliminating complex social issues through leadership, research, education, and strategic project development. We're currently organizing to expose, disrupt, and erode the business of human trafficking. Support for this pilot episode of Human Trafficking 101, Mapping Exploitation, was made possible through the generosity of friends and donors, as well as time invested by those committed to joining us in creating measurable change. As we continue to produce and release future episodes, we're actively seeking partnerships with those who are willing to help us raise awareness and invest in expanding this series. To learn more about Measurable Change or our project, Human Trafficking 101, stay tuned at the end of this episode or visit measurablechange.org forward slash 101. Human trafficking is a business and it's as complex as it is corrupt. This educational series was created to help you understand the various forms of human trafficking and to equip you with the resources and opportunities to disrupt human trafficking in your work and community. When we think about someone being compelled into work or being trafficked, we first have to think about the legal framework that constitutes human trafficking, and that is force or fraud or coercion. The most important word in that trio of words is or. If it's human trafficking, it's enough to see one of those three. For instance, with coercion, it's enough to see that someone is psychologically manipulated or simply offered drugs as a way to coerce compliance. To adequately address this issue and to help survivors, we must be able to identify and disrupt the business models of trafficking in our communities. So we spent 18 months working with human trafficking survivors and experts. We also reviewed over 125 real cases and identified traffickers' methods, victim abuses, and how public health and safety systems respond when interacting with each victim. Polaris, a nonprofit who manages the National Human Trafficking Hotline, further breaks down the broader categories of sex and labor trafficking into 25 predominant types. Breaking down the various business models of human trafficking helps us understand and expose the specific ways that traffickers leverage and exploit legitimate businesses or institutions, such as social services, financial institutions, hotels, transportation systems, immigration, healthcare providers, and other online platforms like social media. 
Each type varies greatly in the way that the victims are recruited and controlled and how the traffickers conceal the crime. Our episode today will focus on escort services. Polaris frames the escort service business model for us in their 2017 report, The Typology of Modern Slavery. Escort services is a broad term that refers to commercial sex acts that primarily occur at a temporary indoor location. The operations are often described as out-call, where traffickers deliver victims to a buyer's hotel room or residence for private parties, or as in-call, where potential buyers cycle in and out of a hotel room where the trafficker confines the victim for extended stays. Based on this information and our research, we've created this escort services narrative. We've anonymized details to protect each victim's identity. two significant events in the 20th century, the invention of the atomic bomb and the assembly line. When he was designing the city in 1805, Judge Woodward laid Detroit out in a grid pattern, and so the major streets radiated like the spokes of a wheel. Southeast Michigan is still suffering from the recession of 2008. Cities like Detroit and Flint were at one point some of the most productive and wealthy cities in the U.S. These cities were the major epicenters of the American car industry, with enormous factories producing automobiles shipped worldwide. Detroit, in particular, was something to behold. Its downtown was studded with architectural gems, and by the 1950s, it boasted both the highest median income and the highest rate of homeownership of any major American city. It also gave birth to Motown Records, named in homage to Detroit's notorious reputation as the Motor City. Wednesday suggests that some of the country's most populous states are already in a recession. Michigan, with the highest unemployment rate in the country and one of the highest foreclosure rates, is near Unfortunately, the eventual collapse of the manufacturing base, especially within the world-famous auto industry, devastated both cities. This horrific devastation is now reflected in the surreal landscape of urban decline. Once proud suburbs now contain row after row of burnt-out homes. Empty factories and apartment buildings haunt the landscape. Tall grasses, shrubs, and urban farms have sprung up in place of what were once hardy working-class suburbs. There's been a lot of focus on rebuilding and restoration, but the work certainly hasn't been easy, and many of those who stayed in Southeast Michigan continue to live in the margins. If you met Terry, chances are you might like him. He's funny, flirtatious, and confident. He asks engaging questions. You get the sense that he's seen some things, and he tells a great story. He was born in Jackson, Michigan, to a drug-addicted mother who struggled to provide stability for him. And after enduring severe neglect, he was removed from her home. Just after his sixth birthday, he was placed in his first foster home near Detroit. Come on, you know foster parents be doing that shit for the money. You know that. Throughout Southeast Michigan, Terry moved from one broken placement to the next. By the time he was 16, Terry had lived in nine different foster homes. Sometimes the homes were in close proximity to his family of origin, but Terry maintains that he didn't have much use for them anyway. Only gift I got from them was the ability to hustle. Shit, I had to look out for myself, so that's what I did. After being charged with assault, Terry was placed in a secure residential program. He had gotten into a fight with his foster father and in a fit of rage, broke ton of his teeth. Terry spent two years behind barbed wire fences and was released on his 18th birthday. He moved in with his cousin in Jackson and seven months later, he was arrested and charged as an adult for possession with intent to distribute. But that's the risk, you know. 
When you're moving the kind of volume that I move, you're bound to attract some unwanted attention. But I could move some product. By 23, Terry was hustling drugs and girls between Detroit, Jackson, Lansing, and Port Huron. Like I said, this is my game. Terry also knows how to spot vulnerability. We moved around a lot. My daddy was an electrician, so he had jobs all over the place. So if he got one, we just kind of picked up and went. This is Katie. She was one of Terry's victims. She moved to Michigan when she was 14 with her father, Daryl, and her older brother. With the intent of giving his kids some consistency and stability, Katie's father moved them to Ypsilanti. His sister, Katie's aunt, lived close by. She looked after Katie while her dad worked in newly developed subdivisions around the state. Katie had limited memories of her mother. She left when Katie was three and overdosed just a few months later. That's why I never mess with that shit, you know? Heroin will kill you. Both Katie's parents struggled with substance abuse. Her dad was a heavy drinker, and his friends were always stopping by to hang out. Some of them weren't good people, you know. Like my dad? He was a good person. He's like party or whatever, but he was cool. Just that blue-collar, work-hard, play-hard kind of guy, you know? Like everyone in that town. But yeah, I don't know. Some of the guys would come around the house. They weren't always cool with me. By 11, Katie was drinking consistently with Daryl and his friends. I think I caught my first case when I was like 14, 15. Yeah, something like that. Nothing crazy or whatever. We are just out playing around, having a good time. And then I kind of got in the wrong car. Katie was riding with an older boyfriend when he was pulled over. He was 25. He had a bench warrant for his arrest. They found, like, weed and shit in the car when they searched it. But I took the charge, because, like, he was, like, 25, you know? If they had charged him with all that, he'd gone away for a while. I just got probation and some community service shit. Over the next two decades, Katie's mounting drug use led her back to the courtroom over a dozen times. Retail fraud, possession of controlled substances, and felony prostitution. Katie spent most of her adult life serving a series of short sentences and trying to get back on her feet. I was just trying to get my kids back. My oldest is almost ready to be on his own. During her last stint in the life, Katie was nearly killed by her pimp. When she was left in the emergency room, doctors didn't think she'd survive the night. He broke my fucking jaw. Oops. (laughs) Can I say that? He broke my jaw, my ribs, and I had a concussion from getting kicked in the head. Katie's recovery kept her in the hospital for nearly three weeks. I was laying there going crazy. I just wanted to get my life back on track, you know, so I called my aunt. Told her I wanted to come home. She had been watching my kids, and I just wanted to be there with them. After leaving the hospital, at 36, Katie checked herself into rehab for the third time. She even joined Narcotics Anonymous. Just as important, she started taking the mental health medication her doctor prescribed. I've been diagnosed with every damn thing. It's ridiculous. Mental health issues litter Katie's family history, and her severe traumatic experiences only compound the effects. When she takes her medication routinely, she feels clear-minded. Oh, it's night and day. You don't want to see me when I'm not taking my meds. Literally, I'm like a different person. She got a job working at the same gas station as her son, and they worked together on occasion. The pay wasn't great, but their relationship was starting to grow. I'd see him at work and at home. I mean, my aunt's basement was tiny as hell, so we got to know each other real well. Katie and Terry both experienced significant early childhood trauma. 
Adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, can impact our neurological, social, and relational development. Katie and Terry also grew up immersed in the toxic effects of poverty and social isolation. Andy Soper is the Director of Education and Development at Measurable Change. He founded Michigan's first shelter for minor victims of human trafficking. He's also the co-founder of HQ, a drop-in center for youth experiencing homelessness in the city of Grand Rapids. Here's what Andy had to say about the social determinants of health. Social determinants of health are the conditions where we live and work and play and learn that impact our long-term health outcomes. So can we get a good job? Do we have access to food? Are we going to bed hungry at night? Uh, is our community safe? Do we trust our neighbors? Do we have access to good health care? Do we have access to good education? Uh, studies find that the more access we have to quality social determinants of health, like jobs and food and housing, the better our long-term social outcomes are both for our bodies, our health, and also for our relationships and our mental health. What we see with people who have been exploited is that early in life, they didn't have access to good education. They didn't have good nutrition. They didn't have a community around them that they could trust. So when we look at vulnerabilities, we consider how safe did victims feel early in life and how safe did perpetrators feel early in life? Did they have access to the types of things that would help them be successful long-term? The ACE assessment looks at our adverse childhood experiences, and it's a tool to help us recognize the risk of long-term health implications for early childhood abuse, neglect, or household dysfunction. ACE scores look at forms of abuse that we may experience in our early childhood, physical abuse, emotional abuse, or sexual abuse. We also look at neglect that children might experience, and that would include physical neglect and also emotional neglect. The last section of adverse childhood experiences is household dysfunction. So we look at, was anybody in your house incarcerated? Did you see your mother treated violently? Was anybody in your house experiencing mental illness? Was anybody in your house abusing substances? And was there death of a parent or divorce in the family? So these three big categories, abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction, have long-term health impacts on individuals, both on their body and also their mental health. Bridget Carr, expert advisor and founder and director of the University of Michigan's Human Trafficking Law Clinic, has firsthand experience working with hundreds of victims of exploitation. She provided us with an in-depth look at how perpetrators target vulnerable people. Traffickers are really good at identifying people who don't have lots of support. I often think about it in my own head as like, traffickers walk through the world seeing scales of vulnerability. Were you sexually abused as a child? Do you have a strong attachment to your parents? Do you have support at home? Will anyone miss you if you go missing? And sometimes the answer to those questions are, you have been sexually assaulted since age three. There isn't anyone at home who cares if you show up at night and no one will miss you if you go missing. And if people are walking through the world like that, they're a lot easier for traffickers to identify and then exploit than if they identify someone who hasn't been sexually assaulted since age three, who does have family at home, so who cares if they go missing? You know, I've heard traffickers talk about it, like, look, I don't need to target people who are going to cause a huge outcry if they disappear, because there's enough people who, if they disappear, no one will say anything about. And so that's a sad reality, right? That traffickers realize that we in communities have a lot of people that we treat as disposable, and traffickers are willing to pick those people up. In recovery, Katie learned to change her people, places, and things. She learned to leave her old haunts behind. But from her window at the gas station, Katie watched old acquaintances buy crack behind the liquor store. 
She'd done it herself a million times. You could get whatever you wanted over there. I used to catch dates in that parking lot. Do it to stop on their way to work. I'd still be up from whatever I was on the night before. God, I used to be up for days. Ugh. One day, Kitty spotted Terry dealing from his car. I was like, how do I know that guy? Man, let me tell you about Kate. She went hard for a long time. I mean, she used to hit me up two or three times a day for a fix. The minute I found a $10 bill in my pocket, it was all I could think about. Shit, it was bad. She watched the steady foot traffic from the street to Terry's car. When her break came, she grabbed her cigarettes and a cup of coffee and ducked out the back door. I was standing there just saying, you need to get it together, dumb ass. Fuck. I should have just called my sponsor. I knew it too, but like, I didn't wanna, you know? It's hard. At 3 p.m., Katie punched out. She glanced through the window again. Terry was holding court at the liquor store. I saw a girl coming out of the door and I was like, damn, she's still breathing? <laughs> Jesus. Then I just walked across the street like, yeah, I'm just gonna go check this shit out right quick. Terry flirted with Katie for a few minutes and then he asked her about her kids and what she'd been up to. We started talking about friends we knew, parties and shit. He had me right back there. I just wasn't thinking or really caring, I guess. If a bitch stand there that long, she needs your help to make a decision. She wants to make it, she just ain't there yet. As Terry opened the duffel bag in the passenger seat, Katie could see small bags of crack. He pointed at the ten in my hand and was like, we can take care of all that, but yo, you wanna make some real money? I ain't forced nobody to do shit. It ain't like I tied her ass up and threw her in the trunk. Y'all acting like this some taking shit. I offered her a legit business opportunity, and she, she took it. Yeah, I mean, I know what he was saying. And the money I was making at the gas station was just not cutting it, so. Katie knew she'd be helping Terry sell drugs and that she'd be engaging in prostitution. Terry drove her to a local hotel, and in the parking lot, he told her they'd need to use her credit card to check in. He said he only used cash, and he'd pay me back after we worked for a minute. Why would I pay for her? Expenses? I mean, that's just not good businesses, right? In the hotel room, the two smoked crack. Then Terry told her to get undressed. He supportively instructed her on how to pose as he took pictures and posted them to online classified ads. Terry posted the images on Backpage. Backpage has since been shut down, its CEO charged with human trafficking. The online marketplace for promoting commercial sex continues to evolve in the wake of Backpage. Traffickers are leveraging other classified advertising and escort listing websites, dating and messaging apps, online commercial sex hobbyist review forums, and mainstream social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and others. Traffickers range from a single person exploiting their victim, often an intimate partner, to coordinated networks of traffickers affiliated with organized crime. All traffickers employ force or fraud or coercion. Recruitment strategies specific to this business model involve using social media platforms as a way to trick victims into a situation by falsely promising that they can provide them shelter, financial support, or other benefits, or through a fraudulent job offer, such as a fake modeling contract, or pretending to have a romantic interest in the victim. Also important that we pause here and note that according to Polaris and the escort services typology and contrary to popular misconception, trafficking does not only take place in cheap hotels or motels with subpar accommodations, Instead, traffickers running in-call escort businesses look for a range of factors, including convenient locations, 
buyer comfort, price, a hotel's policies, procedures, and infrastructure, and whether the hotel is prone to law enforcement monitoring. As a result of these needs, trafficking often occurs at hotel chain franchises that offer a good balance of quality and price while giving buyers a sense of anonymity and safety. He took my phone, gave me a new one. I told her the program. She either answered the phone, how I tell her, changed the price, how I tell her, everything. It takes time, but if you don't teach them right, they be fucking up. That ain't happening on my watch. He gave Katie a strict set of rules. If you ain't with a date, you better answer your phone every time it rings. When he gets there, you take that money up front and you bring it right to daddy. If you hit your motherfucking quota, then we cool. He said he'd keep the money with him so John couldn't rob me. If I asked him about it, he'd get mad. So let me get this straight. I'm supposed to feed you, drive you around, and promote your shit. And you think I'm doing all this for free? Nah, <laughs> you, you tripping. I was like, fuck you then, you know? I wasn't trying to take that shit from no one. Terry met Katie's explosive temper with force. He attacked her, punching her in the head and kicking her when she fell to the ground. Listen, that's how this shit works. That motherfucker stripped my clothes off. He took my phone, my cigarettes, he even took my goddamn shoes. That's what y'all don't understand. She requires that shit. Like a father disciplines his children, you know? We like a family, and in a family business, daddy runs shit. You gotta keep them in line. If they step out of line, they get corrected. Terry left Katie naked in the hotel. He took all of her belongings and refused to bring her food. I don't know. I guess I shouldn't have been as crazy as I was. For three months, Terry moved Katie along the I-96 and I-94 corridors. They stayed in convenient hotels off the interstate and posted ads in every new town. Terry would consistently withhold food and drugs in an effort to gain compliance. When withholding food and drugs didn't work, he'd resort to beatings. Katie's mental health continued to deteriorate. Sometimes the clients would bring me food. A lot of times, actually. That was damn near the only way I ate. At one point, Katie decided she was going to try to get sober, so she decided to tell Terry that she didn't want to take any more of his substances. I said, I'll work, but that's it, because that shit's going to kill me. Terry retaliated by leaving crack pipes and drugs around her hotel room. Sometimes he'd smoke crack in front of her. You just start to think, you know, like, this is all there is. You can't fight forever. Your world just gets really small. Katie had nowhere to turn. She called her aunt and explained what happened and asked for help. She just said, you got yourself in this mess. Get yourself out. And then she just hung up on me. Terry controlled her movements and restricted her in-calls if she got out of line. If I did what I was told, he'd send me out to meet dates. Sometimes he'd give me the car and tell me to go on my own. Katie said sometimes she'd think about driving away permanently, but she was sure Terry would find her. I'd speed on my way hoping a cop would pull me over or something, you know? Even if I got locked up, I mean, it was better than what I had going on. Katie endured extreme physical violence, psychological control, and traumatic stress daily. Her body was ravaged by drug use, malnutrition, and frequent STIs. Trafficking victims are often identified based on their observed abuses. Survivor needs span the spectrum of services, from basic necessities to complex legal services. The vast majority of the victims in the escort services typology are U.S. citizens, and primarily female, women and girls, although men and boys also make up a small percentage. And LGBTQ youth are also vulnerable. Polaris cites the Urban Institute's 2015 report, Surviving the Streets of New York, which states, homeless LGBTQ youth have reported trading sex through online ads and social media, 
at hotels and customer residences. Hotel employees have an ability to detect possible red flags that indicate potential human trafficking in both traffickers and victims due to their close proximity to hotel guests and access to their rooms. Additionally, hotel employees should understand the difference between commercial sex and sex trafficking. Some indicators suggest that commercial sex might be taking place. So if employees identify those signs, they should also look for additional indicators that would suggest that the potential victim in question is being subjected to some form of control, is not fully consenting to the situation at hand, or is under the age of 18. We asked Bridget Carr to help us understand some of the ways that traffickers will financially exploit victims. Here's what she had to say about the long-term impact of this form of exploitation. The other way traffickers harm victims of human trafficking financially, other than just taking the wages that they should be earning, is they will often destroy someone's financial life, meaning they will have that person commit welfare fraud. They will write bad checks in their name. They will open up credit cards. They will file taxes on their behalf that aren't real. I mean, that sort of thing can take years to clean up. And it's not like there's a great place for people to go to say, you know what? I was a victim of trafficking, that's why my credit's so screwed up and why I don't have any cash in the bank and why I can't get a job. Will you loan me enough money to live off of? We haven't found the place where we can take our clients um, and that people will give them money. And so it's a really tough financial spot for people when they come out of trafficking. Up next, Andy Soper provides us with an understanding of a victim's brain behavior after having experienced prior abuses. Trafficking victims aren't just traumatized in their trafficking or exploitive experience. Most of them have a litany of traumas behind them. And so their brain isn't operating on, I should make a great decision. I have an opportunity to tell someone, I'm being hurt, I'm being exploited, please help me. What their brain is operating on is, I have to survive. I have to do what I'm told. And if I interact with someone, even if they could help, what's more important is my survival, not my exit from exploitation. Katie watched other women come and go. Terry preferred to recruit women who are already in the life. If one was arrested, he'd find another through his criminal connections. That's how he met Meg. So my boy hit me up about this little fine up and comer he'd been working with. He said she could make money, so I couldn't wait to meet her. For a minute I was like, why I need you? I've been doing this. Meg experienced complex dramatic events from the very beginning of her life. Meg has only ever known the life. Her mother began explaining her when she was only four years old. Meg was traded for cash, drugs, and favors to family members, her mother's friends, and ultimately to men in the community. I didn't really do school, you know? I was like super ADD and shit, so school was a joke. When Meg was little, her mother enrolled her in school. Her teachers immediately recognized her vulnerability. If they raised questions, her mother would quickly move her to a new school or take her out completely. At 11, Meg was removed from her mother and placed with her grandparents. However, the previous consistent abuse and instability fueled more unhealthy behavior. When Meg's grandparents attempted support and counseling could not overcome her trauma, she was placed in a foster home. Then another, and another. And at 15, Meg AWOLed from her final placement. I've basically been taking care of myself since I was in pull-ups, you know? So, <laughs> I'm like... At first, Meg slept on her friend's couches, but she soon moved in with her boyfriend, Andre. He helped her set up social media profiles and on her behalf, connected with Johns through private messages. We had just rent a hotel room and I have like five to 10 guys blowing up my DMs for a location. So my boy sends me some pics and asks if I want to meet this girl. Andre's like, yeah, he's cool, he's cool. Let's just go and see what's up. 
Andre drove Meg to meet Terry and Lavonia. When they arrived at the hotel, he was as flattering as ever. He was talking all kinds of game, like, damn, mama, you thick. We gonna make mad money off of you. Meg agreed to work with Terry. Like he had with Katie, Terry walked Meg through the routine. She been on her own and picked up all kind of bad habits. I had to correct that shit. Taught her step by step how this gonna work. He posted ads of Meg on classified sites, promoting her youth and ethnicity. At first, he had sit with me when calls came in. He had put them on speakerphone and coached me on exactly what to say. Shit was kind of annoying. Some days it was like 10 to 15 days though. I was making what, like over $1,000 a day. Shit was crazy. I asked him when I met her, yo, you over 18, right? And she was like, yeah, yeah, we cool. I told her, yo, you ever get picked up? You're 18 and you keep the money. When Katie arrived, she was surprised at Meg's apparent youth. Oh my goodness, she looks so young. I'm talking like a kid. I told her, yo, don't even try those drugs. They'll wear you out. Terry had offered Meg drugs, but she turned them down. She was pregnant and hadn't told anyone yet. I was going to keep my baby. I was going to just save up my money and get out, you know? Terry moved his victims across the usual route. He'd rent three hotel rooms in each city. He'd stay in one, and the girls were sold for sex in the adjoining rooms. Meg specifically was not allowed to go anywhere without him. At first, I was irritated, but I ain't say nothing. I mean, that dude beat the shit out of Katie for talking back, and like, I ain't want nothing to do with that. Terry don't play, and he gets mean if you step out of line. When he drove her to outcalls, Terry kept a loaded pistol in his car. One evening after an outcall, Terry was transporting Katie and Meg back to the hotel. When they arrived, one of Terry's friends, another trafficker, was arguing with two women in front of their room. Terry got out and was like, keep your fucking mouth shut and stay in the motherfucking car. Terry snatched one woman by the arm. He and his friend aggressively escorted the women behind the hotel. And I heard, pop, pop. The two men returned to the car, and Meg never saw the women again. I thought I was next. I was like, this motherfucker gonna kill me at some point. Like, that could have been me or Katie. (laughs) That shit was crazy. Crazy, but unfortunately, all too common. According to Polaris, the methods of control that traffickers in the escort services typology commonly employ are extreme physical and sexual violence often accompanied by the use of weapons, coercion in the form of unmanageable quotas, debts, threats of harm, or police involvement, excessive monitoring, gang intimidation, social isolation, and constant surveillance. Traffickers often condition victims to believe they're the only ones who care for them, manipulating an attachment bond that makes the decision to leave the trafficker extremely difficult. The following is a recording of women recounting their exploitative experiences. It's the coercion part because you want to please somebody enough and because you believe that this is actually going to please him. My dad was a pimp. My dad was a violator. Probably two months into the marriage, he started raping me. Every night for four years till I was 12, he raped me. He raped me, and you know, there was all these girls around that worked for him. It was really strange. I'm a stripper and an escort. Because he 
He's gonna be there for he wasn't the only one that abused me. My uncle did. My godfather fucking did it. Like every man I've ever trusted or loved has done it. He put his hand in his pocket and next thing you know his hands were around my throat. Choking the shit out of me and, and I felt myself going out. And they didn't help me in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, they were there when you raped me right in front of them. I opened the door and there he was. It's like, I want my money. I'm like, I don't have it. I don't know if anybody understands what that feels like. The earliest I can remember, I was nine years old. No matter what you've been through. He jumped the fence, six foot fence to get to me. Punched me 10 times in the face. Ian told me I better not have any fucking diseases. And he jumped out from the back seat and told me he was going to kill me. Put the gun to my head and said, walk. You never know when you're going to wake up one day or walk across the street or get a phone call and your entire world is turned upside down. Sergeant Edward Price of the Michigan State Police helps us understand the fear and desperation of a victim's situation as he gives us examples of the tactics that one pimp nicknamed Blue Diamond used to control his victims. Blue Diamond had a history of being violent towards the girls that worked for him. There was one incident when he had a girl tied up in his basement and he beat her and hit her and kicked her and spit on her and threatened to kill her. How did you find out about that? That was a conversation that he actually had over the phone um, where we could actually hear the girl getting beat during the wiretap. One informant had talked about um, a woman's head being placed in the toilet and then having her being, being urinated on. Do you remember that at all? Yes, I remember that conversation. That's how Blue Diamond was. He was, when I say he was violent, he was, he was violent. He beat his girls to keep them in check. There was another girl he had at one point who took one of the other cars and she was gone for like three or four days because she was tired of the abuse that she was getting. Um, and he caught her and threatened her about cutting her arm off and mailing it back to her parents if she didn't bring that vehicle back to him. That was one of the ways that he would, you know, control these girls is through the violence and through the threats. Did you have the opportunity to, to interview Mr. Young, to interview Blue Diamond about? You know, yep, I uh, talked to um, Robert Young several times. I was there when we arrested him in Las Vegas, hiding at a hotel. Um, so I got to talk to him there as well as up here after he was formally charged. Um, several times, and you know, he is still that smooth kind of talker operator. We've spent a lot of time unpacking how perpetrators operate and what constitutes an easy victim. Now we'd like to address the elephant in the room demand. We asked Bridget Carr to give us a summary of what she's observed. Who are the people buying the product? I give tons of presentations on human trafficking, and uh, in no community that I've ever given these presentations has someone set up and stood up and said, I buy sex, or I know someone who buys sex. But I know that I have given talks to people who buy sex. It just has to be the case. The reality of the number of people who are sold for sex means that there's a lot of people out there buying sex. 
But unfortunately, we are unwilling in the fight against human trafficking to own that we know those people, that they're in our communities, that they're in our parishes, that they're in the school pickup line with us. And until we do that, we will never effectively fight human trafficking. Traffickers know this. Traffickers know that they can financially benefit because communities won't accept that they buy. And you can see it as you drive along roads in Michigan. If you've ever seen a sign for an East Asian massage parlor or uh, Oriental spa, you will notice that the sign tells you lots of things about the buyers. One, it tells you that the hours of the spa are often really late, 9 a.m. to 2 a.m. or 9 a.m. to 1 a.m. I've never gotten a manicure or pedicure after midnight. They often sometimes signals who can park at the spas. They'll say semi-truck parking available or truck parking available. I've never gotten a pedicure next to a long haul truck driver. But even more egregious than that is that what it's signaling to community members is that these are not your people coming here. These are people passing through your community. And in general, communities accept the deal. Communities say, oh, you're not selling people to my husband. And if so, I'm gonna walk right by. And that's what we do. Terry rarely allowed Katie and Meg to visit a clinic. If he did, it was for condoms, lubricants, or medication for an STI. However, after one particularly violent encounter with Terry, Meg needed emergency medical care. Terry whooped the shit out of Katie again, and then he gonna send her on an out call like it was no big deal. When she left, Terry and I started getting into it, because I said I wasn't gonna work if that shit kept happening. For the first time, Terry lashed out at Meg. He grabbed his boot off the ground and started beating my ass with it. I covered my head, but he just started punching me in the gut. Meg fell to the ground, but Terry continued his attack. He kicked her in the stomach before throwing his food on her and telling her to clean up the mess. I was just holding my stomach like, oh my God, my baby. Meg began to bleed and begged Terry to take her to the hospital. At first he refused, but when he saw how much she was bleeding, he relented. Terry dropped Meg off at the emergency entrance and handed her a phone. He told me to just get shit taken care of and call him when I was done. I was trying to stay calm in the car, but I just wanted to get out. Medical staff rushed to her attention when she stumbled through the door. They brought her straight to triage and helped her out of her blood-covered pants. Terry was straight texting every second, like seriously blowing my phone up. He's like, what's taking so long? What's going on? Don't be saying shit. After Meg was examined, the doctors administered medication to stop her bleeding. However, as time went on, with every text message, Meg grew more and more agitated. She began snapping at the nurses and demanding they let her go. I told him my brother dropped me off after I fell down the stairs because I'm clumsy as fuck. One of the nurses kept asking if I was safe, like if I had any issues at home or whatever. I was like, no, damn, I just fell, shit. Just do what you gotta do already, I need to go. Feeling out of answers, the treatment team reached out for support. I mean, some wounds don't respond to medication. I preach that truth every day. Chantelle is a social worker at the emergency department. I've worked mostly with children and families, domestic violence, foster care, that sort of thing. Working in the ER really just means I meet victims sooner. Chantelle has been in the social work field for 15 years, but to be fair, she's been caring for victims of abuse since she was in the sixth grade. Chantelle's father was abusive, and she often found herself attending her mother's cuts and bruises after his vicious attacks. A lot of us in this field work out of our pain. I know I did for years, but you can't survive that way and you can't heal alone. I know what trauma feels like, but I also know what healing feels like. And really, you can only take people as far as you go on yourself. The nurse paid Chantel when Meg started to unravel. Uh, 
She was at it, cussing and spitting, calling people every name in the book. They told me she was 19. <laughs> I said, mm-mm, that child really ain't 19. After hours in the emergency, Mike's behavior began to wear on hospital staff and other patients. The nurses remained professional, but their answers were curt. I was like, just finish your paperwork so I can get the fuck up out of here. We're good. Meg didn't seem to want much to do with me, so I just sat down and listened. My intuition told me that anger's coming from somewhere. No one wants to feel that way. Chantelle sat with Meg while her doctor explained how important it was for her and her baby that she calmed down. She was not listening to the doctor's directives. <laughs> she wouldn't even make eye contact. He went right on explaining, but she just kept her eyes glued to her phone. Before she left, the doctor implored Meg to be admitted for observation. I said I could rest at home. Meg texted Terry to pick her up. He told her to be waiting outside when he arrived in 30 minutes. He was like, yo, Katie's tripping. I'll get at you when I'm done with her. I mean, everything about her said she was in trouble. We could all see it, but you can't hold people against their will. That's not how it works. She made up her mind, and you can't reason with panic. Meg demanded her shoes as the nurses quickly worked to remove her IV. We went through every screening, every questionnaire, offered every service. We'd done everything we could. In a situation like that, when someone's clearly operating strictly out of survival mode, my main goal is making a connection. Like just letting them know, I see you, even if it's only for a minute. Chantel could see how painful it was for Meg to maneuver. Every time she reached for something, I'd hear her wince. So I said, can I help you? And I was like, why? So you could steal my shit? I burst out laughing. But I wasn't laughing at her. It was just, I mean, she was just so serious. It made me laugh. I was like, oh, honey, you ain't even my size. I don't trust no one. Shit. I don't give a fuck if she a social worker or whatever. People be fucked up. But she lucky she funny, though. Or I'd have straight slapped her ass. Everyone else was all, uh, ma'am, we need you to stay calm so we can help you. <laughs> I'm like, whatever. At least she fucking real. Meg finally consented. Chantel gathered Mike's items and discharge instructions and set them on the edge of the bed. Terry wasn't texting back. The nurses were slow as hell. I'm steady pressing the car button like, come on, y'all bitches finna get me killed. I told her, Meg, you know what's best for you. If you're telling me you're good, I trust you. But tonight, tomorrow, if you start feeling like you're not, like for whatever reason, I told her to come on back. Then I highlighted the crisis line number on the paperwork and gave her my card. But I'm like, hell no, nah, I ain't keeping that shit. Terry will whoop my ass if he found that shit. Meg was carefully settled into a wheelchair and transported to the emergency exit. Chantel walked beside her. I was thinking like, watch some old foster care worker see me up in here and I end up back in fucking placement or some shit. Then I'm like, shit, fuck placement and fuck Terry. I was ready to just go be out on my own. So tired of this bullshit. Chantel helped Meg from her wheelchair and asked if she was sure she had a ride. She was real nice and shit, but I just wanted her to go. Her entire demeanor changed when we got outside, like all the venom and bravado vanished. Meg told Chantel she was fine and held up her phone. I was like, see, he texts me. We're good. Bye. I offered to stay and help her into the car, but she was insistent. She kept saying, nope, no thank you. Really, I'm going to be fine. I was so thrown off by her politeness. You know, we knew something was wrong, but like right then I figured out what it was or who it was anyway. I almost just started walking. That's how scared I was. I was thinking like, if Terry thinks I told this woman something, he gonna kill me and that'll be it. I watched for a minute or two from the lobby, but her ride got there pretty quick. He didn't even get out of the car to help her. 
When encountering victims of human trafficking, it's quite common that they most often present as victims of domestic violence, substance abuse, sexual assault, and many other related issues. When you think about your community, are you aware of the resources available to support Katie and Meg if you were to encounter them? Trauma therapy, domestic violence, sexual assault, substance abuse, homelessness, mental health, foster care. Neither Chantel nor the medical team knew Meg was a minor. If they had, they'd be required to report suspected abuse. Michigan-mandated reporters should be aware that minor victims of sex trafficking may face additional charges when their exploitation is reported. We asked experts Andy Soper and Bridget Carr to weigh in on Michigan's safe harbor law. Here's what Andy had to say about minors and mandated reporting in Michigan. Safe harbor does a couple of things for youth who've been sexually exploited. Number one, it recognizes that if you're under 18, you're automatically a victim. That's our federal legislation. And safe harbor acts at the state level do the same thing. We say, if you can't smoke or vote, then you can't choose to engage in commercial sex. The second thing that uh, safe harbor acts do is mandate that the court or the child protective services unit provide specialty services for that child who's been sexually exploited. There's a provision in Michigan law that all mandated reporters should be aware of. If they suspect that a 16 or 17 year old in Michigan is engaging in commercial sex and they report it to either CPS or the police, there's a chance that that child can be charged with prostitution. And here's how this works. Uh, Our state law says that if you're 16 or 17 and found performing a commercial sex act, that we assume you are innocent, that you didn't want to engage in that. And so rather than charge you criminally, we'll hold that charge and we'll send you to family court. That family court, that victim will interact with the judge and advocates, people working on their behalf. And they will say to that victim, do the following things. Make sure you stay in school, get a job, pay your bills, obey your mom, dad, or foster parent. And if you do, we'll make this charge go away. But the trauma that victims have endured makes it difficult for them to control impulses, follow directions sometimes. Um, And honestly, if we're talking about 16 or 17 year olds, 16 or 17 year olds don't want to listen to authority anyway. So if that child re-engages in commercial sex after they've been found that first time, if that child shoplifts after they've been found engaging in commercial sex or skips school or, or disobeys anything that they've been told, we can still go charge that kid with prostitution in Michigan. So we can run all the campaigns we want saying there's no such thing as a child prostitute, but our state will charge children with prostitution. So those two things don't add up. And while they might get someone elected by saying there's no such thing as a child prostitute, if our legislation doesn't match it, then we should challenge our legislators to make it right. Bridget further explains the legal aspects of how Michigan Safe Harbor Law can further negatively impact the victims of sex trafficking. Safe harbor laws vary across the United States because communities really struggle with what to do with minors who are being sold for sex. For some communities, the answer is very clear. We can never put them in jail or in juvenile detention. In other communities, it's not so clear. People think, well, what am I supposed to do? I can't leave them on the street. It's safer for them in a detention center or in jail. I don't agree with that. I don't think it's better to arrest someone who's being victimized. However, that is a perspective that's out there. Another thought is, well, that is only the entry door, right? Jail or juvenile detention, and then we can get them into a set of services. 
While that might be nice, it's really the rare community to find that has a robust set of services and evidence-based support for victims of sex trafficking. And so what we're left with is this really scattershot approach to how we treat sex trafficking victims, many of whom, even though they're children, have already had multiple negative interactions with law enforcement. And so this idea that we are going to be seen on the seventh time that we interact with them as a safe place for them to land, in my mind, is really misguided. Uh, in Michigan, our law says that if you are 16 or 17, you are presumed to be a victim of sex trafficking as long as you substantially comply with court-ordered services, which means that in Michigan, you're not a victim because of your exploitation, but because of your obedience. If you don't comply with what the court wants, what happened to you is pretty much irrelevant. You can be charged with prostitution. I find that deeply appalling that we are sending the message to these minors that we don't actually care what happened to you if you don't obey. If you're not a good person for us after this, we're just gonna charge you criminally. I think that message is horrible, and I think that Michigan should move quickly to provide immunity for children who are being sold for sex. A number of states have moved to require that human trafficking be part of mandated reporting. And so in many of those states, like Michigan, if you are a minor who a healthcare provider thinks has been involved in trafficking, they're required to report that to the state. That can be very complex because in Michigan, you can still be arrested for that same behavior. And so it puts healthcare providers in a really tough space. Do they honor their requirement to mandatorily report this trafficking victim while knowing that harm could come to that victim because that victim could be arrested and put in jail? And so I don't have an answer for healthcare providers, but just to know that the law has put them in this very tricky space. And part of the reason it has is because in Michigan we have um, put into statute this concept of a perfect victim. And so if victims aren't quote unquote perfect and then they can be charged, they'll be harmed and healthcare providers have no power to prevent that. Terry had scratches on his face when he came to gather Meg. Meg knew better than to ask him at that point and she really didn't care. On the way to the hotel, he grilled her on what she said to the hospital staff. I kept telling him I didn't say anything, but he had just asked over and over like he does when he's anxious or whatever. Terry was flustered. While Meg was in the hospital, Katie had returned from her outcall. She had spotted the blood on the floor and flew into a rage. I knew I couldn't leave her with them. When I saw that blood, I just went off. I got him good. Katie struck Terry in the head with a suitcase and ran for the door. He caught her by the arm and punched her in the side. But Katie was in survival mode. She clawed his face and wildly threw punches. And then I just snatched the phone and ran. And I could hear him yelling behind me, but I just kept running. No one in the parking lot helped me, like, at all. They just watched. Katie frantically called 911 and begged the operator for help. The operator struggled to understand. I was like, he's gonna kill me. You need to send someone. Before she hung up, she told dispatch that she was in an alley behind the hotel and that she'd wait for them there. Patrol officer Peter Reyes responded to Katie's 911 call. If you heard a 911 call, I mean, it's clearly indicative of someone who is highly intoxicated and terrified. He and his partner positioned their cruiser to flood the alley with light, but they didn't see Katie. We show up sometimes and everyone's already split, so just to make sure, when I got closer to the garbage enclosure area, I called out again. I didn't know who it was. Could have been Terry or one of his boys. When I looked up and out, I seen the red and blue lights. And then I just started fucking bawling. When I, when I got closer, I could see her lip and nose were bleeding. I was going to ask if she could move, but 
she just came flying out. She was sobbing. It was intense. At first, I was like, relieved. Then they just didn't get it, like no matter what I said. Not only had Katie just survived an assault, but she was also still highly intoxicated when the police arrived. She was distraught and gesturing toward the hotel. I know they thought I was nuts, because I guess they couldn't make out what I was saying or whatever. Immediately, I suspected she was under the influence, but I thought there was maybe something else going on as well. I was like, that motherfucker is right over there. His car wasn't there, but like, they didn't know that. Officer Reyes offered Katie a blanket and water, but she refused both. They weren't listening. I told him all the shit he'd done, where he was, all that. They basically just blew me off. After about 30 minutes, I contacted my sergeant, and he advised me to bring her in and file a report. I was like, man, who's high? I ain't going nowhere with you. Go do your damn job and arrest his ass. (laughs) She wasn't really happy about it, but she ultimately complied. Katie recounted her experience to Officer Reyes and a detective but her retelling was muddled. Katie confused names and places, doubling back on details. I mean, I'm not trying to sound callous or anything. She just was hard to understand. I swear I thought they were just gonna drop me off at the shelter, a psych ward or something. Then Katie mentioned Meg's age. I was finally like, you know he got kids up there, right? Yeah, then they decided they are gonna pay attention. She started talking about a young woman who she claimed had recently joined them. She said the suspect had recruited the girl and that she thought he may have assaulted her. Police mobilized quickly. They confirmed ads on Backpage that matched Meg's description, and within an hour, they were in position outside of the hotel. In the hotel, Terry was on edge. He anxiously stuffed clothes into his duffel bag. When we got back to the room, Terry was like, pack your shit. He ain't say nothing about Katie, and it had me wondering, like, what? (laughs) What's going on? As Meg gathered her belongings, police moved into position. When we came through the door, the suspect tried to flee into the adjacent room. They was all yelling like, get on the ground, motherfucker. Stop resisting. So I was just like, froze. They were all, I told you to get on the motherfucking ground. But I could barely even move. It was like, fucked up. We were able to subdue him. He struggled a bit, but uh, yeah, everyone got home safe that night. Police took Meg back to the hospital and contacted Child Protective Services. As medical staff worked to make her comfortable, Chantel scrambled to find services that fit her needs. So what exactly do we need to know in order to identify a victim of human trafficking? Andy Soper and Bridget Carr point out key considerations regarding victim identification. What if the problem with us identifying trafficking victims wasn't that we couldn't identify them, but that we didn't identify with them? So it wasn't that we couldn't recognize signs of vulnerability or signs of someone being scared or panicked or unhealthy. It's that we couldn't put ourselves in their place. And what we need to focus on is that if we want people to be able to disclose that they're being abused in any way, if we want them to come back to our services, whether we want them to come back to a healthcare, to not be afraid of police, um, to interact with their counselor in some sort of way that would be beneficial, they have to have a safe place to begin. We can't provide safety if we can't see ourselves in that person at all. People don't want to mess up if their job is to identify victims of human trafficking. And so it can be very comforting to think that they come in a prepackaged way that are going to be extremely easy to identify, that they're going to have a barcode on the back of their neck or that they're going to raise their hand the moment they're alone in a room with you and say, I'm a victim of human trafficking. 
It's just not the case on either part. It's very rare that someone will self-identify and I've never seen someone with a barcode on the back of their neck. The reality is that human trafficking victims, like human beings, are complex and different. My clients are men and women, adults and children. They are foreign nationals and US citizens. They present in a variety of ways. Sometimes they're terrified when I first encounter them because they've just gotten away from the trafficker or they're not away totally yet. Uh, sometimes they're very strong and confident and know exactly what they want to do next. So it's super important that we pause and let the trafficking victim show us, him or herself, the way he or she views themselves to be. It's also really important that we don't expect every victim to be perfect. The perfect victim narrative is extremely strong in anti-trafficking circles. This idea that a real victim will be elated when we rescue them. A real victim will make good choices after rescue. A real victim hates her trafficker. A real victim helps law enforcement. No, there's lots of real victims who've done none of those things. And we have to understand that people who've experienced severe trauma, um, who have had lots of um, not great experiences of law enforcement in their life, they're going to rationally react to law enforcement in a negative way. And so we shouldn't judge someone's reaction to law enforcement, how they feel about their trafficker or what they choose to do as sort of an indication of whether or not someone's a trafficking victim. Whether or not someone's a trafficking victim is only based on the actions, beliefs, and thoughts of the perpetrator, not the victim. We need to move the spotlight from victims and onto perpetrators and say, what was this perpetrator doing? Not, what was this victim thinking or doing or choosing? Terry was arraigned and ultimately charged with a host of crimes, including felony drug charges, assault, sexual exploitation of an adult, and sexual exploitation of a child. Katie and Meg both testified in the trial. I hate lawyers. All they do is twist your words and play you like you're stupid or something. When she testified, Katie was brought to trial from the county jail. She was serving a sentence for an outstanding warrant for possession of narcotics. On the stand, her testimony was jumbled. It's hard to remember the things from back then I was using all the time, you know, just to get through the stupid shit in my life. My memory was already a little screwy, so I don't know. I just kind of fucked up, I guess. Meg was placed in a secure residential treatment facility. She was deemed a flight risk after she AWOL'd from her last placement. After the trial, she turned 18 and was consequently released to her grandparents. After I lost the baby, I decided I was going to get my life back, you know? I wanted to go to school and then build my own business. We, the jury, in the above entitled cause, find the defendant. Terry was convicted of three charges, but was found innocent on Katie's charge. His defense attorneys argued successfully that Katie was a willing participant. They said that she and Terry operated by a different code than the rest of us, and that the abuse she endured was just, quote-unquote, part of the culture. Terry is serving a 17-year prison sentence. After the trial, Katie finished her sentence and returned to Jackson for recovery treatment. Her aunt was granted custody of her daughter, and Katie has weekly supervised visits with her. Meg worked hard to catch up in school. However, she was so far behind, the work became overwhelming. Meg dropped out of the program and moved to her grandparents' home. She stayed in contact with her advocates intermittently, but communication fell off completely after six months. Yeah, I heard she dropped off the wagon. Breaks my heart, actually. She'll be back, though. She'll make it. She's tough. Neither her family nor her advocates have heard from Meg in over two years. Up next, Andy Soper helps us understand the differences in healing and recovery for those suffering from PTSD and complex trauma.
There's a difference between complex trauma and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So imagine that uh, a young person goes through life, they go to homecoming, they do all the things you're supposed to do in high school, great family, good upbringing, and have a brain development that can actually sustain them functioning in society. Then they join the military, get shipped overseas to a context they've never been in, and they see horrific things. So when someone who has PTSD experiences um, a sudden or shocking event, so it's a veteran and they hear fireworks going off, their body is reminded of bombs exploding. They don't get that choice. The goal with someone who has PTSD over time is to bring them back down to earth, back down to reality, back down to that space where they have control over their mind and their body and they can recognize triggers and, and cope with them so their body doesn't release cortisol, so their body doesn't release adrenaline every time they experience something that's just a little bit uh, anxiety inducing. Complex trauma is different. There is no baseline. There was no healthy upbringing that they can return to over time with good therapy. What they had from the beginning was chaos. What they had was a brain trying to develop in a really unhealthy environment. And so their brain developed to survive. The healing process with someone that's been hurt early, especially early and often, is much different. You have to develop new neural pathways, which takes a lot of modeling and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of repetition to get neural pathways in the brain so that they can choose to make the decision they want to. They don't just automatically jump to the thing that will make them survive in the moment. Reflecting on her experience, Bridget Carr unpacks some key considerations regarding success in human trafficking cases. People love to talk about success in combating anti-trafficking. And I always want to stop right there and say, can we define success? Can we talk about it? what it means for the people who've experienced the process that led us to what we're calling success. For lawyers, we may often say that a success is when a perpetrator is put in jail. And I don't want to take away from the fact that that is a success, right? But it may not feel successful to a human trafficking survivor who has been put through the ringer to make that happen. We worked on a case in the human trafficking clinic in which our client, who was the minor victim of sex trafficking, did not want to participate in the criminal legal process. She did not want to testify. In fact, she didn't even want to return to Michigan after she was returned home. She was pregnant, the pregnancy was complex. She wanted to stay where she was. But our system forced her back. The prosecutor um, subpoenaed her. We lost the fight to keep her where she was and she was forced to come back. Naked pictures of her were shown in open court without her knowledge or permission. Uh, things were said about her in front of a courtroom full of total strangers. If you talk to her about that experience, you wouldn't be hearing a story that feels successful. However, that case, the trafficker got over 20 years in jail. It's hailed in Michigan as an extreme success story. And if your definition of success is put away a perpetrator at all costs, it is a success. But if your definition of success includes how the victim experienced that process, I don't think we can call that one a success. I'm often amazed at how much pressure we put on victims after they come out of exploitation. 
We have lots of thoughts on the choices they should make, on the jobs they should pursue, on how they should recover, on how often they should talk about their exploitation, that we want them to show up at um, church basements and rotary meetings and retell like some of the worst moments of their life. And we want them to do all of this often without paying them to speak. And, and we essentially want them to be the lifetime movie version of a trafficking victim. And that's just not realistic. Uh, for many of them, their exploitation was just another bad experience in a line of many bad experiences. You know, I have clients who have left trafficking and gone on to college and to jobs that people are always happy to clap for. But I also have clients who got out of being sold at a strip club and went back to strip there by choice. And we don't applaud those choices as much, but I applaud it because she's free. We need to applaud the fact that people have found their freedom. We need to stop judging their choices. The way that I can focus on applauding people's autonomy and not judging their choices is by remembering that anytime I restrict choices or um, I push or use my power to coerce people to do something different, I'm no different than their trafficker. Right? They've had so many people in their lives controlling the choices that they make, whether physically controlling it or psychologically controlling it. The best gift I can give someone that I work with who's come out of trafficking is by telling them, look, you can tell me your goals. I can tell you whether those are achievable and you're the boss of me. How this goes is up to you. Whether this goes is up to you. I can tell you what's possible and the range of possibilities for what you want. You are in the driver's seat. As much as possible, when I can put survivors in the driver's seat, doesn't mean they stand up in court, right? They don't want to stand up in court in general, but it means they know exactly why we're in court and we're doing something for them that they want. And as much as we can achieve that, that's how I'm different from the other people they've experienced in their life, and that's always my goal as a lawyer. One of the things we, we should be aware of is that if we have narrow definitions of what success looks like, we may be putting victims through unnecessary trauma. And one example of that is if we require that traffickers are charged with trafficking and go to jail for trafficking. Sometimes there are other charges that won't require the testimony of the victim. They might be slightly less years, years in jail, but sometimes it's equivalent years. But they aren't human trafficking charges. And I'm always frustrated by people in the anti-trafficking movement who feel like the case has failed if the trafficker is charged with something else and goes to jail and the victim hasn't had to testify. I think that's a win. If the victim doesn't want to testify and we can find something else to charge the perpetrator with that puts him or her in jail and the victim feels supported and the perpetrator is in jail, to me, that's a definition of success. Many people want to join the fight against human trafficking but feel like they don't know how or don't see themselves on the front lines like first responders or other professionals. The good news is, that's simply not true. The escort service's business model intersects with a vast number of industries, which means there's a vast number of ways to disrupt this form of exploitation. We're continually developing supplemental content, resources, and recommendations around each episode to help you increase your understanding, know where you intersect, and know how to help. Disrupting human trafficking requires more than awareness, but an actual active commitment and effort on the part of everyone people and businesses that may unknowingly but regularly interact with traffickers, victims, survivors, and buyers on an everyday basis. You can actively disrupt the business of human trafficking today by going to measurablechange.org forward slash 101 to get involved. 
As we conclude this episode, we'd like to take a moment to provide a little more detail about our current project, Human Trafficking 101. Human trafficking is a business, and it's as complex as it is corrupt. Our project, Human Trafficking 101, is exposing this complexity and uniting people to disrupt and erode the business of human trafficking now. We're helping first responders identify victims sooner, care for them better, and creating a data standard to fix their misaligned systems that traffickers are using to their advantage. The state of Michigan, along with 33 other states, is strongly suggesting and for some industries requiring frontline professionals to be trained in human trafficking. Those working in law enforcement, education, social services, healthcare, hospitality, and many other industries encounter victims, perpetrators, and buyers on an everyday basis. However, because human trafficking has over 25 different business models or typologies, there's a lot to understand. And while victims of trafficking may or may not realize they're being abused or even exploited, they aren't likely to identify themselves specifically as victims of human trafficking. First responders regularly encounter situations that have the potential to be human trafficking, but it often presents in a variety of different ways, such as crime, assault, an ER visit, substance abuse, or all of the above. Because of this, victims aren't immediately recognized as victims of human trafficking. For instance, in the escort services typology, trafficking shows up in situations of poverty, commercial sex, substance abuse, prostitution, and domestic violence. So without proper training, it's hard to recognize, and often professionals are left unsure of where to turn for help. Further, frontline professionals have tools and systems they each use every day to track pertinent information and manage their electronic records. The problem is, each industry uses a different system, and these systems do not share information. Data entry, coding, and policy can vary widely between and even within industries, resulting in confusion and missed opportunities. Traffickers understand this and leverage it to their advantage. When we can align professionals and integrate systems around a shared data standard, we can remove a fundamental barrier to ending human trafficking. With the endorsement of the Michigan Attorney General and the Department of Health and Human Services, our project, Human Trafficking 101, goes way beyond just raising public awareness and education. We're educating and equipping frontline professionals with online and in-person interactive training. Throughout this version of the training, we're gathering responses from each professional. These responses are vital for measuring their readiness and supplying us with an invaluable collection of specific protocols, coding, and referral practices used by each industry. We're leveraging that information and developing software to standardize and enable the ability for an immediate exchange of data, patterns, and response protocols to better assist our frontline professionals. This project will not only result in raising awareness and equipping first responders, but it will also aid in investigations and prosecutions, improve victim care, and inform public policy and legislation around this issue. When confusion exists, the only people who benefit are the criminals. The time is now to make measurable change. Will you join us? This pilot episode of Human Trafficking 101, Mapping Exploitation, was researched, written, produced, and edited by Christopher and Melissa McNeil and Andy Soper. Expertise provided by Polaris, Bridget Carr, Andy Soper, Kelly Carter and the Michigan Department of Attorney General Human Trafficking Commission, Jay Camaretti, Jonathan Breams and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services Human Trafficking Health Advisory Board, Alexandra Androkovic, the State of Michigan Anti-Human Trafficking Coordinator, Nisi Holloman, the Executive Director of Voices for Children Advocacy Center, Kathy Maitland, the Executive Director of the Michigan Abolitionist Project, Michigan Network of Youth and Families, and all of the frontline professionals and passionate advocates who have engaged in our training. This foundational knowledge and information has been instrumental in making this episode possible. 
We would like to extend a special thank you to our generous donors and partners, as well as the volunteers that helped us in the production of this episode. Ryan Hum, Joey Naden, Lisa Powers, Nikhidra DeBarge, Tiffany DeYoung, Joe Gafoe II, Chris Rivera, Danae Sherhart, Mark Berry, Johnny Clausen, Matt Falk, Drew Harper, and Ryan and Trisha Mallott for their help outfitting a recording studio, and to Dan Klein and the Understanding Group for providing a home base to work and collaborate. You can find out more about this episode of Human Trafficking 101 or our work on our website at measurablechange.org forward slash 101. Thanks for listening. That man makes money to buy from other men. This is a man's world. But it wouldn't be nothing, nothing, not one little thing without a woman or a girl. He's lost in the wilderness. Yes.